Welcome to the Campus Rich Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 15, The Historical Jesus. Behold, a sore went forth to sow, bearing precious seed in his hand, hoping and hope that he might see it grow. Welcome to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network and to the Campus Preacher Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the faith. Um, so if you head over, we got a brand new website up and going and brewing, and so hopefully uh, you can get over there and visit it. It's flfnetwork.com, and you can subscribe, become a donor, and help us grow this little... Uh, what do you call that? Fledgling network? Uh, fledgling, I think, is new, not necessarily. Sometimes I use that word, and it almost sounds like it is uh, having trouble. So maybe, maybe it is. No, we're not having... So anyway, head over there, join us, and uh, help us grow this little bad boy so we get more content that is uh, designed basically from a uh, predominantly post-millennial perspective um, that we're taking the world over. And one of the ways we do that is by educating the church, equipping the church, uh, addressing the issues of the day, and building people up in the most holy faith. And one of the ways we're going to do that today is just kind of discuss the idea of the historical Jesus. When I'm preaching on campus, uh, now and then someone will show up and uh, assert the idea that there's no reason to believe that Jesus ever existed. And that's called the uh, uh, kind of the, the mythicist or the Christ myth that um, Jesus never actually existed, but uh, these the Apostle Paul predominantly invented the idea of Christianity, and you know, there was never really this person, Jesus, backing this sort of thing. So what I'm looking to do today, it's a little bit more of a straight-up historical argument that there was a man, Jesus of Nazareth, that... Um, the early church was rooted in. No, I'm not arguing for the resurrection. No, I'm not arguing for his deity, all those sorts of things. Yes, I believe all those things are true. Uh, but right now, just kind of the, the basic idea. So if someone wants to tell you that Jesus never existed, and there's no evidence for Jesus um, outside the Bible, and you know the Bible can't be reliable sort of thing. And you know, there's several different ways to do this. But part of, part of what I'm trying to do here is uh, addressing apologetics from a couple different perspectives. And so uh, I, I realize if you're listening to this, you might be presuppositionalist, you might be a classicalist, you might be an evidentialist, and you know, and it's usually the people who are the presup who are the hardest against the uh, other groups. Um, but one of the things you need to realize when you're evangelizing is every person sitting across the table from you is different, and how you talk to them is different. And so when I was in college, I had to read a book called um, The Structures of Scientific Revolutions. Basically, people have paradigms, anomalies arrive in those paradigms then you have a revolution in paradigm. You have a radical shift. And so part, I would just say, of putting forth ideas and facts before the unbeliever is that God will often use those things to change their paradigm or change their presuppositions. Uh, so not every debate has to be straight up over the presuppositions. And because they do live in God's world, in a real world, um, they do have to deal with facts and those sorts of things. So we're just going to look at a, a, just kind of give a real basic sketch and a kind of a, some of the reasons why if someone just says there's no reason to believe in, uh, that Jesus of Nazareth ever existed, um, kind of just uh, a biblical idea as well as um, secular resources that would point you to the idea of why across the board, Bart Ehrman, who is an agnostic um, professor at UNC Chapel Hill, would say no genuine historian on with, on any chair of any substance uh, uh, dealing with uh, these topics uh, would deny that Jesus of Nazareth actually existed. Yes, they deny that he's God in the flesh and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but he would want to say it's a different issue. So why would a guy like Bart Ehrman be willing to say 
Nobody denies it. But then you hop on the internet and you always have the kid who denies it. And uh, they're like, where's the proof? Where's the proof? And so anyway, uh, and, and oftentimes when you're doing this, it's, it's not so much for that kid because you have to realize, like, if you're, if you're talking to a 9-11 conspiracy theorist, uh, there is a certain place where no fact in very broad terms, going to change your mind. If you're talking to Alex Jones, the new world order is behind everything, and there's only so much you can do. And you have to be content with that. And you just have to shake off your feet and realize you're casting pearls before swine. And you can't make anybody cry uncle in these debates. And if you think that we have some sort of argument that you can make everybody cry uncle, and you know they're, they're either going to come to Jesus or at least know they're leaving there going, no, that guy's wrong. Uh, I mean, we just don't understand the nature of the debate. So I'm going to uh, get into a little bit of that. Before I get into that, I want to uh, you know, try to just give a basic update of what I do on campus each week. And the past week has, uh, yeah, I feel like I say this every week, it's been a really good week. Uh, but it has been a really good week. But I actually messed up last week. I... Uh, uh, screw the pooch. Um, on uh, so Wednesday, uh, I start preaching in Washington, and uh, pretty quickly a pretty good crowd gathers. And when a good crowd gathers, uh, the police all often gather, and so inevitably somebody uh, calls the popos, and they come they come in, and this guy comes in a house of fire on me, and uh, is telling me I need to leave and I, or at least move. I'm a uh, and basically what was really funny. He's like, you can go to the, I think he said like the the water tower, or the steam room, whatever, whatever was down over way, and it was like the classic where like, of course you're gonna let me go there because no one's around there uh, at all, and so. Um, you know, yeah, go ahead and say whatever you want, uh, back at the dumpster. And so I said, no, I'm not moving there. I know I'm allowed to be here, blah, blah, blah. I've never had an issue, uh, as far as having to move. I've been coming to this campus for years and we kept going back and forth. And actually I got a little worked up with him and, uh, was letting him know that, uh, he's the one who's actually in the wrong. And I basically just said, look, if you want to arrest me, you're welcome to arrest me. We can let the courts handle this. Um, but I know I'm in the right. And then eventually his higher up came and just said, no, let him preach. Everything's peaceful. And even the students, one thing that was really fascinating, even the students were like, let him talk, let him talk. So even the uh, predominant of the students, there were, there were definitely three students out there that really adamantly opposed me. And one of the best parts, uh, there were the three, one of them had a, a Planned Parenthood button and it was kind of crazy. Uh, I ended up making a comment, he had the Planned Parenthood button. And I went through the, a little bit of the history of Margaret Sanger, who uh, to one extent or another, uh, you know, and maybe just say everybody a hundred years ago was a racist, but she has some racist ideas and implementing or in, uh, kind of giving abortions to the black community. One of the things she wanted to redo was recruit uh, ministers because they had a lot of influence in the black community. So if we get influence, uh, uh, pastors and religious leaders, uh, we'll be able to get the, the black community to accept, uh, abortion. So I kind of lay that out. It was kind of amazing because yeah, th this campus didn't have uh, tons of African American students, but you had a couple there and I was just kind of laying that out. And, um, one of the, like, he didn't really cheer. I, I wish I could remember the exact context. He, he did not cheer, um, you know, basically the killing of blacks. Um, but he, he ended up this, this, guy with the button on ends up cheering the idea of abortion. I was like, yeah, killing black people. Yeah, it's great. And, uh, and at least on the, on the bright side, I think most people are kind of like, that does seem a little insane. Um, so on the bright side, we had that, but anyway, the, the Planned Parenthood kid really opposed him. I think he's one of the people who called the cops and, um, another kid came out and it was funny cause the, the three kids who really opposed me, who he was a, the, the, um, this kind of a anarcho-capitalist kid who was talking to, um, 
the Planned Parenthood kid and two of his friends. And it was awesome because he started calling them status and was saying, you're the ones who's always on this campus uh, yelling about Black Lives Matter and uh, calling the, saying the police are pigs and they're blah, 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 blah. Uh, but at the end of the day, when anybody disagrees with you, you call them in. You call them in. And uh, it's true. Uh, someone disagrees. Here's some speech we don't like. Let's call in the police and uh, try to try to limit this. And uh, so anyway, I got worked up with a cop. And by the end of the day, I, had a, I ended up having a really good day. I actually had a stop at 3 o'clock so the kid brought a boom box out and drowned me out and kind of killed my crowd. But I still had some great one-on-ones for the next hour. And so I'm walking off campus, and I was kind of convicted um, over my interaction with the cop. And it was kind of funny. I, I, I was talking to my sister. Actually, I was talking to my sister the next day. Um, but in talking to her kind of about the context, uh, she said uh, the Proverbs, that where, where there are many words, uh, there are sins abound or something like that. And she goes, and you speak many words. So, so uh, basically, she and uh, my buddy Sean, who I travel and preach with, uh, both actually told me to go apologize to the cops. So I went down to the police station. I was kind of convicted about it. And after getting two witnesses, I was like, all right, got to go down to the police station. Went down to the police station, asked if I could meet with the officer, was able to meet with them, apologize to them. And he was pretty gracious with it and said he didn't uh, take it personally and all that sort of jazz. But, uh, yeah, nonetheless, there was just something that uh, every now and then you, uh, yeah, you maybe you speak a little harshly. But you, what happens is uh, when you do that, if you're convicted, you can go back and apologize. And um, for the most part, I know apologies are weaponized in our culture, um, which can be a bad thing. But as Christians, uh, we can trust God that we can humble ourselves even before our enemies who do want to weaponize it against us, but we know that no weapon formed against us will prosper. And so what we need to do is uh, carry ourselves in a manner um, that's worthy of the gospel. And um, so anyway, that's, uh, that was kind of a little bit of my weekend review and uh, some, some, yeah, some really good discussions with people. And, and what I want to talk about today is... Um, the resurrect or not the resurrection of Jesus is I was going to do a series on the resurrection. Last week's was called the resurrection. I discussed um, uh, the dating of the gospels, and I also want to say I, get, I, I received an email, and I love honestly I love getting emails from y'all, and I will respond. I haven't responded to everybody, but I will respond to all the emails. And one of the things I really liked about the email pushed back a little on me a little bit, and kind of asked why did I date the gospel so late um, was a question, and. My purpose last week was not primarily to set the date exactly of when Luke was written or when Mark's written or Matthew's written. Uh, what I wanted to do is just kind of in very broad terms, give you a reason of why the, at, at the very least the gospel of Luke and from there at least Matthew and Mark uh, were not written after AD 70, that they're written within 30 years of the life of Jesus. And so instead of people saying 40, 50, 60, 70, 100 years later, um, at the very high end, I'm just saying all the Gospels were written, and I'm even going to throw John in at this point, all the Gospels were written within 30 years. And I'm willing to say that they're much earlier. Um, maybe even Matthew was an eyewitness. Uh, he was educated. He was smart. Maybe he was writing even at the time of Jesus. So my purpose last week was not in of itself just to lock down dates and make them late. What I wanted to do is just say, look, if you're considering uh, the timing of the Gospel, it's very reasonable. Just you know, on a basic historical level of reading what is there in Luke and Acts, that those gospel or that Acts and the gospel were written around 60 or before. So 27 years after the death of Jesus of Nazareth, 
these things were written. So they're not way off into the day. So that ties us back into, did Jesus exist? And uh, obviously most of us are, obviously the answer is yes, we're Christians. And if you're non-Christian, uh, hopefully you're listening as well. Uh, but if you're a Christian, you obviously believe it's yes, but every now and then you're going to have your skeptics say he didn't exist and you can either uh, just be aghast or just say, all right, well, here are some of the basic facts that you need to consider and I would like you to explain them. And you need to keep that question in your repertoire. How do you explain this? Um, so oftentimes in apologetics, it's usually us being defensive, uh, off, or at least that's how the unbeliever wants to present it, that we have to be defensive and we have to give the reasons. And obviously we do want to give reasons, but part of the way we give reasons is making them explain what's going on as well. And so there have to be a group of facts, a uh, group of issues that we're bringing to the fore that we're interacting with them w with. And if they just want to punt and not say anything, um, I would just say they're, they're, they're trying to avoid uh, the issue and playing their hand and, and offering themselves up to critique. Um, but you have these mythicists. These people just say, nope, Jesus of Nazareth was a myth, and there's no reason to believe that he was a real historical figure. And one of the leading uh, proponents of that is a guy named Richard Carrier, and he's probably one of the most like qualified. I believe he has a PhD from uh, Columbia, and so and he wrote a dissertation on you know does the historical evidence tell us that Jesus of Nazareth existed? And so he's one of the uh, leading proponents. And for the most part, the people outside of that context are usually. Uh, just kind of nerds on the internet, if you will. Very rarely is it people who, um, you know, are genuine scholars. And so you have to realize that. And now obviously that doesn't, uh, you know, just because someone's a genuine scholar doesn't mean they're right. But when you have, um, you know, a, a consensus position or census position um, by a group of scholars that all say X, um, you better have a really, really good reason on why that's not true, especially if you're just an accountant. You know, no offense to you accountants, but if, if, if you're sitting there coming up with uh, scientific theories and historical reasons and stuff like that, and uh, you, know, you already have your bias and you just set off to try to find everything that fits it, well, that, that's, that's maybe one of the worst ways to go about it. We always see the people who do that and it drives us nuts. We don't want to do that ourselves. Even as Christians, we want to be um, you know, honest, as honest as we can wrestling through the material. And obviously we believe Jesus is Lord and he's working on all things. But anyway, uh, Richard Carrier is one of these people who yeah, I think they just try to stack the deck. But one of, one of the things that he says is basically um, this. This is, uh, I came across on, uh, I can't remember what the website is, um, but he says um, in, a, in reply to a guy named Jimmy Aiken, uh, Jimmy Aiken says, the earliest accounts we have agree that Jesus of Nazareth founded the Christian movement, recruited and trained its earliest leaders, and then sent them out as apostles. Carrier says, but that's not true. The earliest accounts in the letters of Paul know nothing of Nazareth and never mention Jesus recruiting or training anyone. When Paul mentions Jesus communicating with and sending apostles, it always it's always in the context of revelations. So for Carrier, what he needs or what he wants to do is basically that um, this Jesus myth is basically these people uh, maybe just in inspired by Paul, but basically really doing like this, uh, you know, they kind of have this cosmic Christ and not a Christ of history. And so they're worshiping this, you know, cosmic Christ, but it has no relation to Jesus of Nazareth, and, and they even go so far as to suggest that, you know, Paul really knows nothing of an historical Jesus, but only this cosmic uh, Jesus. And on a very surfacey level, that may appear true to some of you. Um, if you're not really engaged in the text, you know, you, you get a lot of what's going on in the spirit, you get a lot of Jesus being in heaven, or, and, you know, you might get some Maranathas, come Lord Jesus, but you gotta get this idea that, um, 
and even the church being his body, you do kind of can get a spiritual sense. Um, but what you really have going on is, is a couple things. First of all, Paul's letters are written for very special occasions. So if you take 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, for I pass on to you that which is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures, he was buried, he was raised up on the third day according to scriptures, uh, then he appeared to Cephas, then to the uh, 12, then more than 500 brothers, last of all he appeared to me. So that's basically 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. If you consider that, at that very point, it's very clear that the Apostle Paul has an historical Jesus in mind. I pass you that which is of first importance, that which I also received. What did he receive? Christ died for our sins. Does that sound simply like a cosmic Christ? No, he died for sins, he was buried, he was raised up on the third day. So that's all very historical and very uh, physical in nature. And then also when you consider uh, what Paul was going through, if you go to Galatians chapter 1, and these are the sorts of details, if you're just making up a myth religion, um, you don't come up with details like this. So in Galatians uh, chapter 1, Verse 18, it says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or Peter, and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except for James, the Lord's brother. If, if Paul just thinks he's worshiping some cosmic Christ, you don't work in the Lord's brother. Um, and from there, you know, if he's sitting there with Peter, what are they talking about? They're talking about, you know, probably the historical Jesus they're hanging out with and that Peter spent time with, that Peter denied and everything else. And so... So th this idea that Paul knows nothing of Jesus of Nazareth is just um, not reading the text with any sort of like real ear towards history. Uh, and I think even Christians can do that sometimes. We sometimes read the text toward the end of theology, and it is giving us theology, um, but we're not always rooted. So even like in 1 John when it says, you know, we write these things, that which we've seen, that that's which our eyes have seen, and we've touched with our hands and heard. Um, you know, it's all very physical. And also at the end of, uh, over in Galatians um, chapter 5, I believe it's 4.4, 4. he says, um, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Again, born of a woman, born under the law. This is not uh, an abstract uh, cosmic Christ that Paul is uh, worshiping. And so also in Romans chapter 1, uh, 3, it says, uh, Paul, a descendant of the seed of David, according to the flesh, declared the Son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. And there are other places. We can look at First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, where it suggests that um, you know, he's killed in Judea. Um, and I think also First Corinthians, uh, or rather First Timothy, let me turn there. First uh, Timothy uh, 6.13 says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made, who his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So think about that. all those things point to Paul having a very historical Jesus in mind. So if anybody wants to say that Paul's the inventor of Christianity and it's this cosmic religion and it's a spirit religion and it's not related uh, to Jesus of Nazareth, it's just not considering... Uh, Two things. One, the context of Paul's writing. You have a group of people who believe in this historical Jesus. They believe in his death, his burial, his resurrection. They've confessed their mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead. And now Paul is trying to help them uh, live that out and work it out. And so you don't necessarily have to rehash all the facts of Jesus' life. Um, but at key points, he does uh, work in the idea of key facts of Jesus' life. So from a very, so from a very basic level, uh, even the unbeliever has to explain. All right, where did, what were they making up? If if there is a if there is no Jesus of Nazareth, what's Paul making up? At the very least, Paul, when he's writing the Corinthians, when he's talking about Peter and the Galatians, um, it's all very earthly, very physical taking place. And so, 
in, internal to the Bible, it's just kind of begging the question to act like those can't be viable witnesses for an historical Jesus, and there's just no reason to believe that. Um, but then secondly, um, I, I do want to say there are basically, I would suggest, two strong witnesses outside the New Testament relating to historical Jesus. And that's going to be a work by Tacitus, and it's also going to be a work by Josephus. And what we get is uh, basically two things. Uh, we get a quote from Tacitus, who's generally considered one of the, uh, if not the greatest Roman historian. Then we also get Josephus, who is a Jewish historian. And I'm pulling this material from Jesus Outside the New Testament by Robert E. Van Vorst, an introduction to the ancient evidence. And it's a great book because it really does cover um, basically all the ancient resources, evidence uh, for Jesus outside the New Testament. And when you read it, there might be a certain level, if you were to sit down and you read the whole thing, there's a, a certain level like, man, we don't have as much evidence as, as you think. Uh, but at the flip side, he, he explains uh, what some of the evidence ought to look like and why we're kind of missing uh, maybe some evidence and stuff like that. And I'm going to brush on that at the end of this, but I'm going to try to make this real quick so uh, we don't won't go terribly long. But uh, Tacitus says this, um, and so I'm going to begin by reading uh, Van Voorst. He says, uh, The Sibylline books of prophecy were consulted, resulting in further prayers to Vulcan, Ceres, uh, Proserpine, and Juno. Ritual dinners and all-night vigils were held by married women. Then Tacitus reveals the reason for these measures. But neither human effort nor the emperor's generosity nor the placating of the gods ended the scandalous belief that the fire had been ordered. And this is referring to Nero's fire. Uh, that the um, scandalous belief that the fire had been ordered. Therefore, to put down the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished in the most unusual ways those hated for their shameful acts, whom the crowd called Christians. The founder of this name, Christ, had been executed in the reign of Tiberius by the procurator Pontius Pilate. And so, very explicit uh, reference uh, to Jesus or to Christ um, by a Roman historian, and it would have been you know, well after the, the, the date of Jesus actually being crucified, probably 70 years later is around the uh, end of the first, beginning of the second century, that this would have been written. Uh, but it's a very clear reference. And then also what you end up having is uh, the Jewish historian Josephus. He has uh, two explicit references um, to Jesus, and uh, one of them is this. Um, I'm going to begin by reading Van Voorst again. Uh, because this mention of Jesus is short, and compared to Josephus' other passage on Jesus, remarkably uncomplicated, uh, we're going to deal with it first. Ananus, the high priest, rash in temper and unusually daring, acted during a gap in Roman gubernatorial authority. He assembled the Sanhedrin of the judge. This is um, Josephus. He assembled the Sanhedrin of the judges and brought before it the brother of Jesus called Christ, whose name was James and some others. When he had accused them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. And so there you have Josephus referencing Jesus, the brother of James, very similar to what uh, Paul was saying. And so, yeah, there he is talking about James, the brother of Jesus, um, in very basic his, his, history and referring uh, him as the brother of Jesus. And so what you, what you have there in Josephus, it's an uncomplicated passage, as uh, Van Voor says, and even other secular um, historians would recognize, yep, this is a valid passage. It's a reference to Jesus, uh, the historical Jesus. Now, there's another passage where Josephus 
mentions them. And if you mention this text of Josephus, you're going to have the atheist immediately pounce and say, or the, the mythicist pounce and say, this uh, section of Josephus is unreliable because the Christians have doctored the text. And there's a grain of truth to that. And we could say, yeah, there are definitely uh, evidences that Christians have doctored the text. Um, and it's a longer discussion than what we're going to get into this podcast. But uh, yeah, we can say that's true. But um, when you, but you know, one of the things with the higher critics, and I realize oftentimes Christians would be scared of it, but they, as they reconstruct a text, even you know your average Joe atheist historical uh, textual critic comes out with what's, what's end up being called the neutral reconstruction of this passage, which is basically uh, if Josephus did write this, and we and we make it neutral in the sense that Josephus is being descriptive about Jesus. So if you take this passage, you have Christians that did kind of hype the text up, making Jesus more than what he was. Um, and so what the critic wants to do is take this Josephus text and bring it back to a more neutral setting. How would Josephus describe Jesus rather than using Christian lingo? He's the Lord. He's this. He's, you know, he's the high, most high or whatever. Uh, not, not that it says that, but, you know, instead of that extreme language, how can we make it neutral? And here's what uh, this section referring to uh, Jesus being neutral in Josephus sounds like. Around this time lived Jesus, a wise man, for he was a worker of amazing deeds and was a teacher of people who gladly accepted, uh, who gladly accepted the truth. He won over both many Jews and many Greeks. Pilate, when he heard him accused by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross. But those who had first loved him did not cease doing so. To this day, the tribes of Christians named after him has not disappeared. And so the idea that he's a wise man, that, that's a fairly neutral comment on who Jesus is. Uh, the idea that he uh, was a worker of amazing deeds, which is uh, not necessarily a straight up miracle worker. Um, but Josephus uses that, man, and I cannot remember where else in uh, in there. I believe of Elisha, who refers to him as, uh, you know, uh, Parabolic, I believe, is the Greek word, and kind of like these um, kind of hard to comprehend or, and strange sort of things. So it's not a straight up miracle worker, but uh, he just kind of has this idea that Jesus did some things that were unexpected, as well as him being wise. And so, outside the New Testament, you have two very explicit references to Jesus. And uh, so, yeah, when you just look, consider the first century. Um, we do have real basic evidence that Jesus existed. Now, the question often arises, well, why don't we have uh, more, quote-unquote, evidence? And uh, Van Voorst, again, I'm going to read a paragraph from him, and I'll wrap this up, because this is, this is actually a really good sort of thing, and, and a type of thing that's very helpful in understanding what's going on in the first century. He says this, and, and all of it's worth reading, uh, you know, the last three pages of this section on Jesus in classical writings, uh, but I'm just going to read one paragraph. He says this, Several factors combine to explain why we do not have more contemporary classical witnesses to Jesus. First, the work of those, the works of those Roman historians who are contemporary with Jesus or lived in the next 80 years after him have almost completely perished. So just think about that. We just don't have a lot of existing writing from that time. And if we don't, why would a guy from backwoods Galilee have tons of stuff written about him? Uh, by Roman historians. They would not spend tons of time with them. And there were other would-be messiahs at the time. Where's all the writings about them? Uh, we, we don't have it. Most of what we know is from Josephus. And so if we compare apples to apples, um, how many first century Jews are written about, especially would-be first century Jewish messiahs, and what evidence do we have for them? Uh, you know, Jesus is head and shoulders above the rest. 
And so uh, he ends up saying, at first, uh, the works of uh, Roman historians who were contemporary with Jesus or lived with the next 80 years for him have almost completely perished. Nearly a century of Latin historical writings has vanished. The work of all the writers from Livy died in 17, the Common Era, to, to Tacitus. The only exception is the inconsistent panegyrical work of Velius Patercolalus. You know, after I butchered Joaquin Phoenix... Um, Joaquin. I don't even know what his name is. I still don't know it. Um, I'm, a, I'm afraid to read to you guys or pronounce anything that's difficult because I, I know I'm going to butcher it. So I, I don't have any Latin under my belt. But this guy, this Patercullis guy. Uh, but since uh, this work extends only to 29 AD and likely was written in 30 um, about events mostly in Rome, we can hardly expect it to mention Jesus. Of course, we must not assume that the works that have disappeared into the midst of time would have made any references to Jesus. The closer to Jesus they stand, the less of him they likely would contain. And so that's just kind of an interesting historical thing. He goes on to explain several other reasons of why we don't have tons of first century Roman evidences that Jesus existed. We, in general, don't have tons of evidence of historical figures during that time. So we shouldn't expect uh, to have them at the time of Jesus as well. So that's just a little basic uh, background. Get, get your feet wet, hopefully, with some uh, basic ideas of history that when you buck up into these uh, Christ mythers, that uh, it's very clear the Apostle Paul did believe in a very real historical Jesus that was crucified, dead, buried, uh, born of a woman. And then you have some evidences in Josephus and Tacitus, which are the most um, explicit references outside the Christian context, uh, referring to him in the first century. And, and the fact that they're written later, um, believe it or not, is not evidence against the fact uh, that Jesus existed, you know, 60 years prior, um, that's how history was done in the first century. And so you have to consider all those things. You know, it's not like people are cranking out blogs or podcasts back then. So anyway, uh, that's our story. And uh, so one of the things you can basically believe in uh, that historians uh, generally accept almost universally who are of, uh, of some stature is that Jesus of Nazareth really existed. So that's our basic fact. Number one, you're able to lay out with the unbeliever. Uh, thank you for listening. Any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to contact me, Keith, at campuspreacher.com, as well as uh, on the Twitter, Campus Evangel. Uh, God bless you. Talk to you next week. Hoping and hope that he might see it grow Knowing that the harvest might well come before the bloom He runs on his way, there's no time to be going slow Hurry, take what you've got, do with it what you can